On uh, March 14th in 2005, a man who uh, identified in his medical record simply as W.O., you know, HIPAA laws and whatnot, uh, he woke up this particular morning and started his morning like any other. He was stationed at a military base over in Germany, and so he got up and uh, he went to the gym and worked out and played some basketball with friends of his. Uh, after that, he got ready for the day and he went to the office and like any typical uh, work day, he had a backlog of emails and so he's feverishly trying to catch up on emails and just kind of get his head around the day. And the reason he was working so diligently in the morning to get head on emails and stuff is that afternoon he had a, a dentist appointment to get a root canal, which is always just tons of fun, right? And so he knows after the root canal, day's over, not going back to work, it's going to be recovery time. So that afternoon, W.O., this man's initials, he, he goes to his dentist appointment and he sits down in the chair and they, they put the anesthesia in. They, they do the whole procedure. And after this procedure, uh, and his medical team is not sure why this happened. There's no good reason for it. Something happened to W.O. and he lost the ability to form new memories. He literally developed amnesia. And and his brain uh, functions where he can make memories 90 minutes at a time. After 90 minutes, he forgets everything. And the reason it's just his initials is there there was an article written about this. They're trying to study him figuring out what is wrong that he can't form new memories. Now, you can imagine developing amnesia and forgetting large parts of who you are, how disorienting that would be. And so his medical team, they came together and they gave him some simple tools just to help him function. And so one of the things that he does now is that every morning he wakes up, he has a file on his computer and he goes to this file and he reads about who he is. He reads about the the relationships that are in his life. He reads about who's still alive, who has since passed in his family. And, And he has to every day consult this document to remind him of his identity, of who he is, of what's important, of where to invest his time and energy, of what his job, all every day he has to remind himself of this, right? And, and just imagine how hard, how disorienting that me. But I tell us this because my concern for us as, as believers is that I wonder if we haven't developed some spiritual amnesia, right? And what I mean by this is I wonder if we haven't forgotten what our identity is in Christ, And just like W.O., this man had to daily consult this document to be reminded, who am I? What's important? What are the relationships in my life? I think, church, we need to be diligent about coming back to Scripture to be reminded of our identity in Christ. Because every day we are being formed and shaped and discipled by something. And one of the biggest discipleship questions we have to answer is who and what is discipling us? And my concern is that the amount of time that we spend in work and in media and all of these things, we're bombarded by all sorts of things telling us who we are and what kind of people we ought to be. And in that, my concern again is that we forget who we are in Christ. And so we need to continually again come back to scripture to be reminded of who Jesus says we are and how to live and walk daily in relationship with Christ. And the reason I think this is so important is because of this. Identity rooted in the wrong places will result in investing our lives in the wrong things. Identity rooted in the wrong places will result in investing our lives in the wrong things. And we'll spend time and energy and invest years of our life in pursuit of meaning and purpose and significance rather than living invested in and rooted in who Jesus says that we are and the life that he's called us to live. So as we think about how our identity is formed, I want to talk through briefly three cultural sources of identity. And by cultural, I mean, these are things that if we look broadly at the the American culture that we live in, these are three key things that I think often we root our identity in. 
The, the first cultural source of identity is, is reputation. For a lot of us, we want to have a good reputation. We want people to think well of us. We want people to like us. And, and I think in a social media culture, we've really mastered the art of curating a version of ourselves that we want to project into the world. I mean, on Instagram or TikTok, whatever, you can literally basically create a highlight reel of your life that shows all of the good things and yet none of the bad things. And so we call, curate these versions of ourselves that we want people to see so they think well of us, so they think we're a success. And so we want to have a good reputation. The problem is what the world needs is not people with a good reputation. What the world needs is people with deep Christ-like character. And I think we have a character crisis in our culture. Second uh, cultural source of identity, it's reputation, it's occupation. And by occupation, I mean the roles that we invest our lives in. Now, these roles are important. You, you have a job with the title, that's important, it's not bad. You have other roles that you inhabit, Fa- father, mother, son, daughter. All of these things are part of our life. Do they, do they inform who we are? Yes. Are they the core and the identity of who we are? No. And yet for so many of us, we live rooted in this idea that we have to have this upward source of of success and mobility and and the title that I have and the office that I have and and, and the the, the salary that I get, all of that filters into this sense of of who I am as a a person and and my sense of significance and my sense of self-worth and my sense of value. And so we want people to think well of us. We want to have uh, the right titles and the right roles that, that allow culture to speak well of us. And finally, it's the accumulation of stuff, the things that I own and the money and the material. And so if reputation, occupation, and accumulation, if all of this is on an upward trend, we're doing good and people will respect me and they'll like me and, and I have this deep sense of meaning and worth and significance. And now maybe you're, you're sitting there going, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not that much. Now, remove one of these things, and how, do, how does that feel in your life? The loss of a job, a financial challenge, a place where someone says something about you that's not true. Well, what happens to your sense of self-worth in that moment? And, and here's the thing. I, I'm not saying that these things are bad or wrong or sinful because they're not. The problem is we tend to place these things at the center of our life and, and these become the source of where we find value and significance and purpose. And so when one of those goes wrong, our whole world is off kilter. And so what I'm suggesting to us today, church, in light of Paul's teaching that we're going to jump into in just a second, is that these things need to be replaced with life in Christ as the core center and priority of how we do life. And I don't just mean Jesus at the first of a long list. I mean Jesus at the center and at the core of everything we do. So let's walk through this. This idea of life in Christ, transformed and given a new identity. This is where Paul leads us right away in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. 
And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I believe right away, as Paul opens his letter, he brings some important and significant teaching to the church at Philippi about what our identity in Christ should be. Now, typically, when you wrote a letter in the ancient first century world, you would open the letter uh, by saying who it's from, Paul, who it's to, the church at Philippi, and and then you would have a greeting and a thanksgiving. And and most of Paul's letters in the New Testament follow this pattern to the T. One thing that Paul does in the letter to the church at Philippi that's different is the language that he uses. Because in the first century world, it was common when you wrote the letter to also assert your title. So in many of Paul's New Testament letters, he'll say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he's talking about, when he calls himself an apostle, the authority that he has to bring teaching and instruction to the church. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at how Paul introduces this letter. Philippians 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, now look, look at what he says, servants of Christ Jesus. Notice that as Paul opens this letter, you would never do this because to be a servant, and literally the word here is slave, right? The word that Paul uses, if you were writing a New Testament letter, you, you would never do this because this is not a title of honor. This is not a title of status or standing. And, and by the way, the, the, the community of Philippi was a community where retired Roman soldiers, high-ranking officials, often when they retired, they would move to Philippi to settle. So Philippi is a community where status matters, where rank matters matters, where what people say about you matters, where your social connections matter. And so when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, yeah, me and Timothy were servants. Now, the brilliance of what Paul is doing is that he's, he's teaching by example something he's going to come back to in Philippians chapter 2. In the second chapter of his letter, Paul, when he writes to the church, he'll tell them, your attitude towards one another should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. So in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul will tell the, the, the church at Philippi, in your attitude with one another, be servants. Now, right away in the opening of his book, Paul is leading by example by saying, Paul and Timothy, we are servants of Christ Jesus. And I believe, church, that Paul is teaching us something significant about what our identity is to be. I want to suggest to us this morning, in light of Paul's teaching, that we are to recognize that you and I are first and foremost servants of Christ Jesus. And we are to live with this mentality that Jesus is my Lord, that I live my life in service to him, submitted and surrendered to him. Let me me go back to Philippians 1. Helen, if you can flip back to that. Notice verse two. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Right? He highlights the relational connection of God as Father. But notice what he also says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies Jesus as Lord. And and I think, church, if we're honest, this is something we struggle with. We, We like this idea of Jesus as Savior who frees me from my sins. We struggle with the idea of Jesus as Lord who asks us to submit and surrender our full life to him. And so Paul says, Timothy and I, we are servants of Christ Jesus. He identifies who they are, their servants, and he identifies the one that they're serving, which is Jesus Christ, who's in a position of lordship and leadership in their life. So I want us to reflect on this for a minute. What does it look like to live our lives in full surrender of Jesus Christ? I think this looks like recognizing my life is not my own. 
And, and I think we live in a culture that says, if you want freedom and you want happiness, you need to live life however you want. You're free to make whatever choices you want. You can live and do whatever you want. That's what culture wants to tell us. Paul says, no, no, no. Your life is to be lived in service and in surrender and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we have this contradiction because servanthood to Jesus sounds like a limitation of freedom, doesn't it? I don't want to live as a servant because that that restricts my freedom. I want the freedom to choose to do whatever I want. Here's the problem. You've maybe heard this, this quote about sin. Sin always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay and always takes us farther than we wanted to go. And so we live in a culture that would say, do whatever you want, choose whatever you want. The problem is when we rebel against the word, ways, and wisdom of Jesus, because we have the freedom to do whatever we want, when we run headlong into sin, you think you're in control. The problem is sin always controls us. So it's really a question of who and what are you living in submission to? Because we're all living in submission to something. My concern is that for so many of us, we're living in servanthood to our own appetites that keep us in slavery and in a place of oppression. When Jesus says, come, offer your life in service and submission to be, be my servant and discover true freedom. And so servanthood to Jesus Christ, church, that's where true freedom is found. Will you submit and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And this means several things for us. It means trusting the sovereignty of God to guide and direct your life. For so many of us, we want the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. We want to figure it all out. We want to direct the course of our steps. And yet when we live surrendered and submitted to Jesus Christ, there's going to be moments where he redirects our course of action. There's going to be moments where he changes our plans. And it's a question of, as servants of his, will we be surrendered to how God might guide and direct our life? Now, when we go back to the the three things of, of cultural identity we talked about, reputation, occupation, accumulation of things and stuff, Servanthood to Jesus Christ looks like submitting and surrendering all of those places to Jesus, right? That that my reputation, it's not about what people think of me, that I'm submitted to Jesus Christ and he's developing his character in me. And the character development that Jesus is doing is more important than what people think of me. My occupation is, is not just what I do to find meaning and significance. I surrender that to Jesus Christ. And so the roles that I inhabit in my life, those become a ministry area where I say, Jesus, I'm submitted to you in my role as husband or father or mother. I'm submitted to you in my occupation. And all of those places, I step into those roles going, how can I serve Jesus in this place? Do you see how life in Christ, living with this mentality of being a servant of Jesus, how it begins to transform our sense of identity? That your work is not meant to define you and bring you meaning and significance. That is meant to be a a mission field to serve the cause and the call of Jesus Christ right in that place, to bring him glory. And that sets us free. Because church, we, we live in a culture of comparison, John Tyson, in his book, The Burden is Light, he talks about this idea that that we simultaneously uh, uh, go back and forth between places of despair because of comparison. And so we look at other people's lives and we go, well, they're more successful and they have this house and they have this stuff. And we compare ourselves to them. And then we find ourselves in this place of despair going, well, I don't have what they have. I'm behind. 
And other times we compare ourselves to others and we go, well, I'm glad I'm more successful than they are. I'm way beyond with that. And we have this feeling of superiority at their inferiority. And both of those places are wrong ways to live. It's because we're finding our meaning and purpose and identity and value in what we do, what we have, what other people say about us. That needs to be surrendered to Jesus. We find our value, worth, and significance in him and our reputation, occupation, and the things that we have are our instruments and means of serving God's purpose and means of being mission-minded. They're not the things that bring us value. And and I think, church, this really begins to set us free from the trap of comparison, from the trap of trying to be enough and recognize the sufficiency of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so, again, it's this question of will we live in total submission and surrender to him? Let's go back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now notice who Paul writes the letter to. He says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus. So not only does Paul identify he and Timothy as servants, but when he writes the letter to the church at Philippi, he writes them to all God's holy people. Here's the second component of our identity. We are to live as servants of Jesus, and we are to recognize that in Christ that we are holy people. To be holy means to be set apart. When you think back to the Old Testament, right, there there was the temple. And in the temple, you had instruments of worship. And those instruments of worship were holy. You had the Holy of Holies, which was the innermost room where the Ark of the Covenant sat. The Holy of Holies, it meant it was a set-apart space for the presence of God to dwell among the people of Israel. The holy instruments of worship were set apart, not for ordinary use, they were set apart to be used in worship of God. When Paul writes to the church at Philippi and says, all God's holy people, he's saying, you are to live a set-apart life. Your life is not ordinary. You have a God-given identity. You have a God-given purpose. And he is calling you into life with himself. And for so many of us, we settle for the ordinary, everyday rhythms of life to get successful and to achieve and and to, to accumulate lots of stuff, which Psalm 39 says, in vain we go about heaping up wealth without knowing whose it will be. For so many of us, that is the pursuit of life. And yet as Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, no, 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 live as a servant in Jesus Christ. Recognize that you are called in Christ to be holy, to be set apart, that your life belongs to him. And so this idea of servant and holy, they they, they, uh, have to go together. That my life is set apart for worship and service to Jesus Christ. And now for Paul, it's this question of how are we holy? For Paul, it's important. He says, you are holy in Christ Jesus. It's not a work that I do in myself. It is the sufficiency of the work that Jesus does in me. So what I'm describing, this idea of living as a servant of Jesus Christ, of living a holy life set apart in service to him, what I'm trying to do here is begin to paint a picture for us of what mature life in Jesus Christ looks like. To walk holy in service with him, yielded, submitted, surrendered to him. The question is, how do we walk in maturity? We know that God calls us to be a servant, that he invites us to, to yield our life to him. We see that, that Paul calls the, the believers at Philippi and, and those who follow Jesus to be holy, to be set apart. The question is, how do we do that? Look at verse 6, Philippians 1, verse 6. 
Paul says, being confident of this, right? Paul, he says, this is what I know. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, the one that began a good work in us is Jesus Christ, right? He says, the one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That word completion means fulfillment. It means maturity until the day of Christ Jesus. And and here's the beautiful thing, church, is that this is not a works-based thing. It's not that I have to try hard enough. It's really about yielding into the gift of God's grace, And so how do we walk in maturity? It's recognizing that God and his grace will finish in us the work that he has started. It's not that I somehow have to work up the courage to submit and surrender my life to Jesus. It's that if you are walking in life with him, the Holy Spirit will bring conviction and God will bring opportunities before you in his grace to submit and surrender your life fully and completely to him. And so what it is, church, is it's a yielding into the work that Christ wants to do in us. So even now, I want us to begin to reflect on what are the areas, the arenas of your life that you're going, I want to hold this back and maintain control. I I, I don't want to trust Jesus with this part of my life. And maybe even now you sense the conviction of God to say, I want you as a college student to surrender your plan for your occupation after school. Surrender that to me. And you're going, but what, what if Jesus changes my, my course of action? I, I don't want to do that. I, I'm already invested in this, and I have this plan of how I'm going to make the money and how I'm going to be successful and how I'm going to do all the things. And yet you sense Jesus saying, just submit it to me. It doesn't mean he's going to change the plan of action, but are you willing to offer that as an opportunity to say, Jesus, it's yours? Maybe as a parent, you're going, you know what? I've had this mindset of what I think perfection as a parent or a spouse should look like. And you sense God saying, I want you to surrender your marriage to me. I want you to surrender your children to me. And I want you to invite my spirit and my presence and my grace to inform how you parent and how you step in and lead in your marriage and in your household. And we think we've got to have it all figured out and we've got to have the perfect plan. And God's saying, yield it, surrender it to me. Submit to my lordship and leadership in your life. So here's the next question is, what does maturity in Christ and walking out a new identity, what does it look like? Again, let's go back to Philippians chapter one, beginning in verse nine. Paul says this. He says, and this is my prayer. Let let me just pause there. I think that this is really cool that Paul gives us an example of how he prays for his people. Have you ever wondered how would the apostle Paul an ancient leader in, in the early church, how would he pray for me? How would one of these men who, who knew Jesus personally, who'd been in relationship with him, Paul was, was met Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? how would somebody with that kind of spiritual leadership and that kind of spiritual maturity, how would they pray for me? Here's your example, right here, Philippians chapter one. This is how Paul prays for the believers. He says, and this is my prayer. He says that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you would be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So so let's talk about what this looks like. What what is maturity in Christ? Living in service and submission to him as a set-apart one, what does it look like? Paul prays that your love would abound, that it would grow, that it would flourish. And life in Christ, walking in maturity, looks like a love for God and others rooted in my relationship with God. And this love for God and others begins to flow out of my life in every capacity, in every place that I'm called to to, to be a part of, in every sphere of influence that I have, love for God and love for others is made readily apparent. 
And, and Paul says, he pray, says, I pray that your love would abound more in knowledge and depth of insight. In other words, knowledge is what we know. Depth of insight is about wisdom, how to understand what we know. And Paul says, as you mature in Jesus Christ, as you know him and as you walk in wisdom and in Christ, you begin to live a life of love that transforms the way that you live in every facet of life. And this will come back for Paul as a theme in the writing of Philippians. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, he says not to do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. He says your attitudes toward one another should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Paul is trying to help the Philippian community understand that if the church lives out their radical identity in Jesus Christ, growing in love for God and one another, that it's a transformative community that the rest of Philippi will look at the church of Christ followers and go, there's something different about the way that they live. There's something compelling about the way that they live. So maturity in Christ looks like a love that grows in knowledge and in wisdom. Look at the outcome of it, verse 10 so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. So for Paul, he prays that they would grow in love, that they would grow in knowledge and in wisdom so that they would have better discernment. He says, so that in your your life, you're gonna be able to know what is the best course of action. And, And I want us to understand the full context of this. When you are living and walking as a servant of Jesus Christ, when you are living with this mindset that you were called to be holy, to be set apart for him, it changes the way you make decisions and it changes the rhythm you make decisions in. Because if we are formed culturally by reputation, occupation, and the accumulation of stuff, when you have to make a decision, you're gonna go, well, what's best for me? What's gonna make me the most money? What's gonna make me the most respect among other people? What's gonna help me achieve cultural acceptance and find more meaning and value and significance? When we're walking in Christ, submitted to him as a servant, when we're walking with a set-apart life in him as a holy people, we approach decisions before us and we go, what's gonna honor God with how I make this decision? It changes the rhythm of how we make decisions because instead of just jumping in and being decisive and and choosing a course of action, it causes us to step back and say, Lord, I want to walk in your knowledge and in your wisdom. And we begin to open up these decision moments to a place of prayer to say, God, would you lead me? Would you guide me? Would you direct me? Would you help me to know the best course of action here? And so for Paul, when you're living out your identity as a servant, walking in this place of recognizing that we are a holy, set-apart people, it changes the way we make decisions and it changes the rhythm that we make decisions in. We slow down and we seek the wisdom and understanding that God would bring to point our lives towards a place of honoring, glorifying, and serving his purpose. Also, Paul says, so that you may be pure, that you would be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. That word pure means to have a single intention and motive. It's not double-minded. It's not, it's not doing one thing, but really having another thing on your mind. It's I am single-mindedly devoted to pursuing the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ in my life. That, that is the, the pureness of my intention and motive. The, this word blameless means you're not causing others to stumble. That you're walking with the singular intention to love God, to love one another, to walk in his wisdom and discernment and insight. That single-minded motivation to serve him. And out of that, you're not a stumbling block from others, but instead you, you guide them in truth. You guide them in righteousness. You guide them in the same wisdom and knowledge and understanding that you're walking in as a Christ follower. Verse 11. 
Paul, as he uh, fleshes this out, what does maturity in Christ look like? He, he says that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness just simply means living rightly aligned with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. And when you're filled with the fruit of righteousness, you live a life that more and more reflects the character of Jesus Christ. So when you live as his servant, walking obediently to the things that God has called us to, in yielded submission and surrender to the lordship of Christ, when we live a set-apart life, walking holy in Christ, he does this work of redemption in us, transforming us and redeeming us so that we are people filled with the fruit of righteousness. And notice what Paul says, uh, the outcome of this. He says, to the glory and praise of God. When we live this kind of life, yielded and fully submitted and surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, when we live a set-apart life, not, not caught up in the currents of culture, but saying, God, my life is surrendered to you. Would you lead me, guide me, direct me in your ways and wisdom? May I be filled with the fruit of righteousness as you do this work in me. It begins to point people to Jesus, and God is glorified, and people begin to praise him as they see the evidence of his work in our life, and as they begin to encounter the truth and the love and the wisdom of God in and through a redeemed community of believers. So again, I want to come back to this question. As we think about what Paul is teaching us about identity, to live as servants of Christ, to live as a holy people set apart for him, I want to come back to this question. Where do I need to yield my life in service and submission to Jesus as Lord? What does it look like? Where's the place in your life that you've been holding on to control? And Jesus says, I want you to live in this arena of your life as a servant of mine. That your job is not your own. It is to be a place where you go, yeah, I might be employed as a teacher. I might be employed as an office manager. I might own a company. But that is a means and a context submitted to Jesus Christ that says, I am your servant in this place. And my ultimate goal is not to become the most successful I can. My ultimate goal is to see the things of God brought to this place through a life lived in the wisdom and maturity as one who is set apart for the call and the cause of Jesus Christ. That we might be a transformative presence right in the places where we live and work and have influence. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And, and I thank you for the example of Paul. I mean, he has every right to, to put his title in there, to own that he's an apostle. And yet Paul leads by example, saying, me and Timothy, we're, we're servants of Christ. And, and God, in that, I find the, this challenging call in my own life that my life is not my own. That we are called to live a life surrendered to you. And so even now, Lord, there, there's places maybe where we're holding on to control. Places that we don't want to yield to you. Places where we don't want to submit to your lordship. And so God, in that, we're not living true to our identity. And maybe for some of us, Lord, we've got spiritual amnesia. We forgot who we're supposed to be, that we are a set-apart people called to be holy in you and through you because of your grace, that we are called to be servants of Christ Jesus, that your plan, that your purpose, that your priorities are what matter most. And so God, I pray this morning that you would grace us with the courage to submit and to surrender every part of our life, every facet of our being to you. Lord, to know that, that we don't find worth and significance in what we do or what we have or what people say about us, but Lord, we have worth and significance because of who you've created us to be. 
And Father, forgive us for the places where we have rebelled, where we've tried to do life our own way. Lord, help us to live as your servants, submitted and surrendered to you. And may the prayer of Paul be true of us, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that we would be able to discern what is best, and that, Lord, we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. May we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.